Today, we light the third candle in our Advent wreath, the candle of joy. The picture painted by the book of Zephaniah is one of a people indifferent toward God. Social life was characterized by self-sufficiency and the pursuit of riches. There were many problems in that land, fraud, deception, apathy, and unrighteousness. Zephaniah's prophecy was a wake-up call to a nation that had forgotten God. Fortunately, Zephaniah perceived God's holiness and his passion for justice. So he speaks of hope. He sees a time when God will restore his people and believers will know that they are loved and secure in God. We are reminded that having a right relationship with God requires a commitment to living a righteous life. Please stand as we hear these words from Zephaniah 3:14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult in all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A week ago, Friday morning, my mother was taken to the emergency room of the hospital. My dad was with her about 12 hours before uh, she was able to go to a room. And I was with her for about seven of those hours. I have to tell you, seven hours is a long time to wait. The hard thing about waiting is that so many things are out of your control. You, you stare at the pulse oximeter, but um, you don't know when the heartbeat uh, was going to come down. You don't know uh, when her oxygen rate is going to be what it's supposed to be. You stare and wonder when the nurses will come in and tell you about a change. And then you hope, you hope for another word from the physician. Seven hours is a long time to wait. But you can imagine then the problem of the people in, of Israel. Because 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah in the 11th chapter told them a Messiah would come. There would be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And they waited. And it was a long wait. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who would die at the hands of Nazi Germany in a concentration camp, once said that waiting for Jesus at Advent is like waiting in a prison in which the door can only be opened from the outside. And they waited. And that door did not open. When I waited during those seven hours, I began to try to kill the time as best I could. And so I went outside uh, on a number of occasions where the ambulances pull up to look for the alleged snow, which wasn't there. Then I would go back in and then I'd make a trip to the, ho to the uh, hospital coffee shop with hot chocolate, come back. And then I found where I could make a list on my phone. A little bit later, I discovered on my phone there's also a place where you can record memos. So every hour I began to document what was going on. I looked for all sorts of ways to kill seven hours. 
But how do you kill 700 years? Maybe you don't kill 700 years. Maybe you just live it. One of the things I think that I've told you that I've learned uh, later in my life is I used to think that the people of Israel got so bad that God could take it no longer. God threw up God's hands and finally sent the Messiah. But when you look at groups of people committed to God and and to God's word and to justice, people like the Pharisees, people like the Essenes, then you realize quite the opposite is true. That God looked and saw people who cared so much about God and what God wanted that God finally sent the Messiah. It seems that they didn't kill their 700 years. They lived it, and they lived it through faithfulness, through love, and through obedience. And I started thinking about that in the emergency room, and I pulled my phone back out again because my phone, perhaps like yours, has a Bible. And I opened to the text, and I began to memorize the Scripture. And I looked up. And the doctor walked in.
if anything, can be said for the characters in the first Christmas story, it is that all of them are on a journey. Mary and Joseph are journeying to Bethlehem. The angels have journeyed from heaven to earth to give the good news to the shepherds. The shepherds will journey to the angel, I mean, on the angel's word, to the manger. King Herod will send soldiers from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and wise men will come from far away in the east. When you think about journeys, it seems that often there are two kinds of journeys. Ones are the journeys that we plan, the journeys that we calculate, and the journeys we even look forward to taking. Vacations are such journeys, and visiting relatives over the holidays may be such journeys. And then in life, there are other journeys that we don't really plan and don't look forward to taking, but they're journeys that are thrust upon us nonetheless. Visiting relatives over the holidays may be such a journey. Every one of the biblical characters finds themselves in the first Christmas story on a journey they didn't choose, a journey that they were forced to go on. And so Mary and Joseph are summoned to Bethlehem by Caesar. The shepherds are sent off by the angels to go because they can't resist the good news that has been given to them. The star appears in the midst of the Magi's daily life, and they can't help but respond to the summons of the star. And then from the fortress in Jerusalem, the soldiers of Herod are sent to Bethlehem to look for babies. It seems that in our life, too, that oftentimes we are sent on journeys that we really didn't choose. There is a health crisis in the family and we start on a journey. A relationship is broken in some way and we end up on an unwanted journey. The economy is downsizing and so it reflect, is reflected at work and we end up at an unwanted journey. Often we go places that we would not choose to go. But I was reading the late Henry Nowen this week, and he talked about life and the curves that life can throw us and the interruptions and distractions that come our way in life. And he said, basically, there's two kinds of attitudes to have about this sort of thing. One is this. I have planned my life. I have an ideal life in mind, and any journey that I get called on that I don't want is an interruption. It's a distraction. It's something to be endured or born and, and gotten out of as quickly as possible. And then he said, there's another way to look at it, which is to say, my life is not about an ideal destination. My life is actually about the, destruction, the distractions and interruptions that come my way. My life is about taking the journeys that God puts me on, even if those journeys are against my wishes. I've come to find that for me, this is a much better way to look at life is to say these interruptions, these distractions, these, these curves that I'm thrown, whether it be in the economy or through illness in the family, this is my life. And I lead it and live it as faithfully as I can. You see, the scripture teaches us that the destination is not the most important thing. It is the journey and what you become on that journey. So the deal is, is not whether you're going the places that you had planned to go. The deal is this. Wherever God is sending you, are you going lovingly and faithfully on the way? Mary and Joseph ended up at Bethlehem, but then so did Herod's soldiers. And yet they came to the same destination as completely different people. 
It's not the destination that counts in our life. It's the people we are becoming along the way. Be seated, please. I've told you before about Gerald Sitzer, a religion professor in, in Washington State, who wrote about grief and his experiences of grief and its aftermath as he has lo- had lost his wife, his daughter, and his mother-in-law in a head-on collision with a drunk driver. In the book, he says that it's not the tragedies that are the defining moments of our lives. He says it's the response to those tragedies. So the important question in our life is not what happened, he says, but rather what happened after that? What happened next? I wonder if the same could be true about the blessed and great events of our lives, the graduation from school, the wedding, the birth of a child, the promotion, the joining of a new church, that maybe those are not the defining moments in our lives, but rather what happened after each of those events became more significant. And I wonder if this could also be true of the great events of our Christian faith, events such as Easter, that maybe it's not that Christmas 
by itself is the defining moment of our life. But rather, the defining moment of our life becomes, what do we do with Christmas? It's not just that Jesus came in the world to be with us, but what do we do with that? It is our response that determines the significance of any event. It's not the event in our lives itself. If that's so, let me offer briefly two thoughts about how one responds to the event of Christmas. C.S. Lewis, I believe, uh, years ago said that the incarnation, the coming of Christ at Christmas, was like the invasion of Normandy on D-Day. He said that that was a great beachhead that was established, but there was still much work and much fighting that had to be done. And so Christ has come into our world and established that God is with us. But there's still much to be done. My suggestion is twofold. First thing that has to be done in our lives is that we need to express gratitude. Christ came at Christmas to show that God cared about us, that God was with us and is with us. And for that, we should be grateful. But that's not all that happened. Christ then went on to show us how to live, to die that our sins might be forgiven and to raise again so that we might be with him in love eternally. That requires gratitude. Too often the response of North American Christians is more like, God, I still need these things, rather than thanking God for all the things that God has done us, has done for us. Gratitude would be a great place to start on responding to Christmas. The second thing is this. I would suggest surrender. If God's kingdom was inaugurated by Jesus when he came, the only way that kingdom moves forward is when those of us in the Lord's army of love take orders from the Lord and move about with him in his kingdom. Put it another way, God's kingdom will never advance as long as we are more worried about our own kingdom than God's kingdom. Dallas Willard puts it this way, in order for us to participate in the kingdom of God, the kingdoms that we have set up for ourselves must die first. When we surrender, when we decide to take orders from a higher authority, that is the appropriate and proper response to Christmas. We can put on our door the same sign that a professor put on his doors years ago. It said this, I hereby resign as boss of the universe. It would be a good move to respond to Christmas, to resign as boss and decide that we would take orders from the one who loves us and the one who calls us into his service. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat dies and goes into the ground, it remains alone and it won't bear much fruit. But if it goes into the ground, then much fruit will come from it. I always thought Jesus was only talking about the resurrection, that we've got to die first to experience the resurrected life. But now I realize he was talking about all our Christian life in general. That until we die to our own desire to be the king of the universe, God cannot do all the great things in us and with us and through us that God would like to do. It seems that Christmas every year is like a great big present. But it takes two hands to open this present. One hand is the hand of gratitude and the other hand the hand of surrender. I invite you to stand as you are able, as together we join in Carol 240, Hark the Herald Angels Sing.
Please be seated and join me in prayer. Holy God, you keep us loving. You, the God whose name is love, want us to be like you, to love the loveless and the unlovely and the unlovable, to love without jealousy or design or threat, and most difficult of all, to love ourselves. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.